0: Good to see everyone this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to do so after the service. I'm John. I'm one of our pastors here. We're going to be continuing on through our, our series through uh, 2 Samuel. We're going to end up in 2 Samuel 9 if you want to go ahead and start grabbing that. But I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. We did. I, I got my, my final Thanksgiving fix last night. Um, I got my green chili Made out of the leftover turkey, and uh, if you 're not from denver you know go go to steve 's place he' he'll, he'll show you what green chili's really made out of but that's uh that 's one of my favorites is uh is green chili over dressing i don 't know if y'all did that did y'all ever do that no okay i 'm weird but anyway that's that's that 's one of my favorites is uh that after the Thanksgiving leftovers to throw some green chili over the uh, uh, the dressing, but it was good. I hope everyone enjoyed, and we do again want to say welcome. I know we have family members um, and friends in town. We're glad y'all joined us for worship this morning, um, but we are going to continue on through a journey through Second Samuel. Where we started in First Samuel, we're actually going to go all the way through Second Kings. But this is the story of of Israel setting up a kingdom. And the whole time that this is doing, it's, it's just this echo that we hear off in the distance of Christ's coming kingdom and of Christ's first incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas as we begin that, uh, to think that way. And so we're going to talk today about David and his kingdom and what happened there. And I want to give you a quick catch up, but also walk through um, 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's some of the nitty gritty of David's wars that he uh, was involved in to establish uh, Israel in, uh, to its greatest dimensions ever. So here's what's kind of happened. David has become king and he's consolidating his kingdom. So there were, there were some rival people who was going to rule after Saul, the first king, um, And so there's some questions. David ended up very much coming to the forefront of that, and he he has gotten power at this point. He has the army, um, and he has the might, and he is recognized as the ruler of Israel. And then he begins to expand his kingdom. And a lot of these dimensions that he expands it to are what was promised um, even beforehand when the people were about to go into the land. But the problem in chapter 8 is we see David doing exactly what God said in a way that was not very godly. So he was doing the right thing in very much the wrong way. A lot of times he was very unethical. He was was almost fear-mongering to get power and, and make people fear him. So David led Israel to take over parts of Lebanon, or what is now Lebanon, Jordan, into Syria, all the way to the modern border where it's at with Egypt right now. Um, David accumulates huge amounts of wealth during this time. So he is, he is conquering and he is stealing things um, from these places. Um, it got to the point that at one point he lines up an entire army where we think there's probably around 18,000 people. He lines them up into three lines. He actually takes measuring tapes to measure them so they're even and then kills two of the three lines to send people back telling how horrible and how strong David is. So there's all these weird things going on. I mean, why he had to measure them, I mean, it's, it's odd. But we see a king taking power. And God used even this mess of David and oftentimes his unethical treatment of people to establish his kingdom. And then we start to see who David really is in chapter 9. And that's where we're going to be, 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want you to open your scriptures there. If you don't have a Bible, there are black ones Uh, there in the chair backs in front of you. Grab that. It will help you as you walk through. Uh, You can turn to page 260 there. Um, If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please feel free to take that home with you. We'd love uh, for that to be one of our gifts to you. So as we start this, David is rich, he's settled, he's in power, the kingdom has expanded, he has everything he wants. And what do you think the first thing David would do in that situation would be? I mean, I can think, uh, you know, if you you gave me the list, okay, you won the lottery, what are you going to do? I mean, I've got that list that would probably pop up within seconds in my head. But we really start to see, despite David's failures, the character of his heart come out in chapter 9. And so I want us to read through this, um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read through the whole chapter, and then I have five um, observations, a couple of them are going to be really short, a couple of them we're going to kind of unpack a little bit more. But I want you to hear this story of David and this very obscure man who we wouldn't even know. I mean, this, this doesn't fit the history. So th- like the timeline that we're going through, this shouldn't be on there. It's just that God knew we needed to hear this. We need to hear this little story of what happened kind of on the side. Th- this isn't the major timeline, but it's so, so important. And this has just resonated with my heart this week. Um, yesterday, all day, I just couldn't wait to get into this Scripture again. Because it's so rich. It's so rich. So read with me. Second Samuel chapter 9 says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David had made a promise to Jonathan, his dearest friend, uh, Saul's son, the rightful heir of the kingdom, that I am, one, not going to kill you, but two, I'm going to honor your family. I'm going to take care of your family when I become king. I'm not going to kill them, as was the tradition, to make sure there wasn't some rival um, claim at the throne. He promised, I'll be good to your family. So we see David willing to keep his promise. Verse 2, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And we'll hear uh, his name come up two or three times. This guy, he has no spine. Whoever's in charge, that's who he's for. That's who he's with. He just flip-flops all the way through this book. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Verse 4. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir. The son of Amiel at Lo Debar. Now, pause for just a second. We'll come back to verse five. Lodabar, Debar. We don't know where that was, and there's probably a very good reason for that. This this is not a name, um, you know, that might be a, a name that is just a place, something like Denver, where I'm from. I know that uh, Sarah's from there as well. You know, there's there's kind of we don't really know the history of that this is a word. Okay, this is this is like a town um, that I drove through once. And that was too much. Uh, in Texas, called plain view. You wanna know why they called it plain view? Cause ain't nothing. I mean, it, nothing. All right, this is low debar. Low in Hebrew actually means no or not. Dabar means a word, a thing, or place. This is literally called nowhere or nothing or nobody. There is, n- I mean, it doesn't get any worse than low debar. All right, it is nowhere. So we are literally going to be talking about a story of the dude from nowhere today. All right, so verse five, let's, let's keep going and see this man's story. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amuel, at Lodabar, just to make sure you didn't miss it that he's from nowhere. Verse six, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and paid homage. Now, again, it was tradition in that day and, and up to fairly recent times that when you take over, you kill the previous reigning family so they can't make a claim of that throne. So this guy's probably a little bit terrified here. He, he is running in. He's going to make sure everybody knows he's for David. Um, there's no, he's not making a claim at this. this is, he is on David's side. So he falls down on his face. And then it says, And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So he says, I'm going to be kind. In other words, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to treat you with kindness and respect. Two, I'm going to give you all of your grandfather's lands. His grandfather was the king. These were David's rightful possessions, who's now the king. And he says, I'm not going to take those. I'm not going to lay claim to that. That's yours again, Mephibosheth. All of it. He made him a rich man in that very second. This is, this is the ancient Israel equivalent of winning the what, billion and a half dollar lottery. He had all the money he could ever imagine. He was literally going to live like a king for the rest of his life. That's what David gave him. But the last thing, and you shall eat at my table always. This is a risky move on David's part. Because again, this guy was the former king's grandson. He was the heir to the throne. And he said, sit at the king's table. Not only that, it's not just, it's easy to be kind to somebody you don't see. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the angel, there's a reason we do angel trees and stuff like that at Christmas time, because we don't know those people, and we want to do a nice thing, and, and we should do that, and we need to do that. And by the way, there's over 90 families our church is going to be doing that for, or coordinating doing that for, so sign up with the food pantry. We got a lot of that. But that's easy, right? You buy a gift, you take it here, And the delivery is coordinated. I mean, there's no emotions invested in this kind of stuff. David said, eat with my family. Be with me. I want you to be my friend, my counselor, my partner in ruling this kingdom. He took a huge risk. Verse 8, and he, this is Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, I don't know why Mephibosheth said that. It obviously doesn't tell us. But it shows you what he thought of himself. It shows you he had no hope. He considered himself the value of a dead dog. Let me tell you, they they don't go for a whole lot in pet stores once they're dead. Mephibosheth realized he had nothing. He had no claim. He had nothing to give, nothing to offer. And David says, sit at my table. Let's keep going. Verse 9. This is the working out of what David's already said. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, house I give to your master's grandson, And you and your sons and servants shall till the land for him and shall bring the produce, and your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But, in other words, he's going to have everything he could ever want. I want you to make sure that you take care of the land for him. You're going to run it. You're going to be the steward. You're going to run all this stuff. But he's not going to need to eat it. because, But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands to his servant, will your servant do? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Do you hear the honor? The blessing that David bestowed on this man? He gave him everything. He treated him as a son. And by the way, we're going to get to this later in the book. There's all sorts of craziness that goes on with Ziba. Again, he's a turncoat. He's a mess. Mephibosheth actually gets blamed for trying to take a, make a steal at the throne one time when David's at a low point. It turns out Mephibosheth was in the kingdom, in the throne room, weeping, didn't shower, didn't shave, and sat in the throne room until David came back the people who made the play at the throne that time were actually David's biological sons. This is the man. The unofficially adopted son who's faithful. Let's keep going. Verse 12. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. It says four times in this passage, four separate times, that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. And in Hebrew, when you want to make a point of something, you just say it over and over and over. In these short 12, 13 verses, we says it four times. There is a point being made. This man, he was somewhat the right-hand man. He he was right there with David through all of it. And, And strangely, you hear the stories of David and Goliath, right? Anybody heard of Mephibosheth before? Like, this guy disappears on the pages from history, not because he's not there, but because we don't know what to pay attention to. We don't get what David got I want to bring up five things that we kind of run through and talk through of what this was like. So here's the background of Mephibosheth. When Saul was king, he was fighting against David. He was trying to murder David. Saul and Jonathan and all Saul's other sons go out to fight a war. That's why there's not too many of Saul's family left. They all got killed. And so they are out, they're fighting this war, they're killed. When they're killed, there's a servant who picks up Mephibosheth, who's apparently a small child. We don't know exactly how old, old uh, small enough you could carry them, okay? He wasn't going to run away on foot. He had to be carried. And the fear was whoever would become king would kill this young man. And so this servant takes off running, with, carrying Mephibosheth, and drops him and his legs are crushed to the point. There, there's such an injury, either that person fell on them, he fought, fell on a rock, who knows what happened. But he is injured to the point, this is a lifelong injury where he was lame. He, he either walked very poorly or did not walk. And this man lived this life. And suddenly this man, who couldn't work a farm, that's what everybody did back then, who couldn't hunt, who couldn't do all those things that you were supposed to be able to do, is sitting The king's table. And so I just want to pull out five things that we see in this passage that I think God wants us to hear. The first one, and this is going to be quick we're to reflect our God of truth by being a man or woman of your word. And you can see these in your bulletin if you want to take notes. Reflect the God of truth by being a man or woman of your word. David kept his word to Jonathan, Jonathan wasn't even alive to see it done. But David said, I'll take care of your family. David went hunting for his family just to take care of them. It cost him. There was risk, but he kept his word. Jesus taught us like this in Matthew 5. He said, just simply say yes or no. We should be such men and women of our word that people don't need anything fancy like I promise or I swear, that they don't even need that because if we say yes we're just going to do it. If we say no, it's the truth. We need to reflect who God is in our character because He has changed us. He is the God of truth. When Jesus was questioned about who He was, He replied it this way in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So first, reflect our God of truth. By being a man or woman of your word. Keep your word. People should be able to rely on every word you say. Be faithful. Do what you say you're going to do. Speak truth. Speak truth. Second thing. Again, this will be quick. God's ways trump culture. God's ways trump culture. David did not consider the consolidation of his power to be his ultimate purpose. He didn't consider holding on to that throne that God had promised him. He didn't consider that ultimate. David, he's a mixed bag on his successes and failures. He does things the wrong way. We've even talked about that. I mean, just to to the point of fear-mongering. But David's heart was ultimately after God. And so in a culture that would say, kill all of the former king's family, Put them away. At least get them away and banish them. He says, no, I'm going to show kindness. Consider the inputs of your life. What's coming in? You see, the world is not neutral or passive. It, whether it's Saturday morning cartoons, social media, or the news station, the world is actively infiltrating your mind and your heart. It's after you. There is a real spiritual enemy in the devil It's not just some funny cartoon that sits on a shoulder. There is an active pursuit of your heart. There is a desire for you to be discipled, not just by Jesus, but by the world and Satan himself. He would love to influence your actions and your thoughts and your minds. We need to consider these inputs. Do we consider God's ways above the ways of our culture? Whatever that might be. So first reflect the God of truth by being a man or woman of your word. Second, God's ways always trump culture. And third, we're going to camp out here a little bit longer, incarnate. We're going to come back to that word, so just, just work with me here. Incarnate the love of God by being intentional to honor those with disabilities and special needs. Incarnate the love of God By being intentional to honor those with disabilities and special needs. So let me break down what I even mean by that statement, and then we'll talk about that and apply it a little bit. First, that word incarnate is chosen very, very specifically. When when we talk about Christmas, the theological word for this is the incarnation. Um, If you've ever had Spanish class or or you like Mexican food, you will know that there's a lovely dish, one of my favorites, called carne asada. It it means meat, It, it means flesh. That's the word in Spanish, carne. And it comes from the Latin um, and eventually even the Greek. Incarnate means to take on flesh. That's what Jesus did. God from all eternity, God the Son, took on flesh. He incarnated. He, He became carne. He incarnated himself here on this earth to live the perfect life for you, die the death for your sin and my sin. And then He rose up again, retaining that body, but in a glorified state and lives and reigns forever to rule. He incarnated so that we might be saved. And now as Christians, what God calls us to do is to incarnate that message, to be the flesh to God's message of love and hope and peace and salvation. He calls us to incarnate that. In other words, we put flesh to the message of the gospel. We are not the gospel. Doing things for people is not the gospel. But but we put flesh and bone to the words that are spoken. And so we need to incarnate the love of God. We need to show that love of God. And, And I want to particularly highlight, just because this happens to be who was in this passage It was a man who had a disability. He was lame in both his feet from the time he was a young child. And societies across this globe have always looked down their nose at people who might not look and walk or even think like the majority. And David, in one of his good moments... Absolutely blew that out of the water. He didn't take Mephibosheth and say, oh, you're lame. Let me do some nice things for you and then get out of my sight. He said, no, sit at my table. He treated Mephibosheth as a son. He treated Mephibosheth as, and this is a really important word, he treated Mephibosheth as a full person. not a half-person, not a person who we need to care for and have some pity for. He treated him as a person. He treated him as a man. I think back um, to my college days. I, I had the great privilege of getting to do um, a, a couple of courses in the Middle East. I got to go to Israel, Egypt, a few other places and study. And one of the uh, times I got to do that, there was a woman who was in a wheelchair. And uh, she was coming back to get her education because she had not been able to do that at a typical time. And she and her husband went with us in there and studied. And we, we, at the first of that trip, it was really um, awkward. OK, so what do we do? We're on a bus. And it wasn't a wheelchair accessible bus. <laughs> and so it's like, OK, what are, what are we going to do here? She, and she could not walk at all. And um, so her husband started carrying her on the bus. And then we'd fold up the wheelchair and bring it on. And the first few days, it wasn't that big of a deal. We, you know, we kind of walked down the path, and we'd take turns if there was a hill or something like that, helping push her wheelchair. And then we got to the first archeo- archaeological site. Now, there is no path, <laughs> there are no stairs. You're climbing a mountain, and uh, it was it was awkward to say, "Okay, what do we do here?" And uh, it's a bunch of college people and. One of the guys, and I I don't even know who it was, I don't remember, I have no idea, said, you want to go? And she said, yes. Four guys picked up that wheelchair and we walked up a mountain. That simple question that I didn't know to ask, do you want to go, sparked something in my mind and my heart. I'm still learning, I still have a lot to learn. But that young college guy realized that she was a person, and she might want to go, and we should ask. I know that sounds dumb. I'm not trying to talk down to you, because I didn't get it, and I still don't fully get it. But he treated her like a person. David treated Mephibosheth like a person. And one of the things I want to say to us as a congregation is we've got to learn that. If someone has a disability, they're a person. They're made in the image of God. They deserve to be treated like a person. Have I said it enough times? I think I'm up to like 15 or 20 now. But do you get get it? At Providence, we have been blessed. And I do mean that. Blessed by a number of godly church members who have some disabilities, handicaps, some of them special needs. I may not even be saying all the right words there, and if I do, I apologize. Teach me what they are. Let me say, I am so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for putting us up with us when we do dumb things. And I mean that genuinely because we want to do this right, but we don't always. Sometimes we say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. Don't, there's parts of this building we're already like, oh, we missed that one. Um, Thank you. Those of you who serve, thank you so much. I think that's every one of our adults who might be handicapped or have a a disability. Some of our, our ladies who have special needs, thank you. I'm grateful for you. You bless us. Thank you. Um, I'm so grateful for you. But I also want to say we need to keep trying to do this better. We need to keep trying to be a body of Christ better. And so when someone has a disability, when someone's child might have a special need, when someone might have a handicap, we need to be better at this. Ben read from 1 Corinthians, God has assembled this body together and it's got all the different parts. Y'all caught the metaphor, I hope, here. He's talking about the body of Christ, a local body, and he's comparing it to a human body. We've got a hand, and we've got a foot, and, we've got, and the foot doesn't do the same thing as the hand and the mouth doesn't do the same thing as you know the calf muscle or whatever it is. He, he said we're all different. But God has put us together for a reason, and we're to function as one body, and so the hand can't get cocky and, you know, say, I don't need that other, you know, I don't need lefty here. We're a body. And sometimes we need to hurt together a little bit. Sometimes, praise the Lord, we get to rejoice together. And so let me ask you, let me ask you, congregation, be intentional to love on every single member of this congregation. And if you don't know how to do that with some of the members of our congregation, take the initiative to figure it out. Usually it's really simple like, hey, can I take you to lunch? You know, rocket science, I know. But ask the questions. Do the work. Do the work. We're all broken and struggling in our own ways just that sometimes that way might be a little more visible. So don't get all awkward and weird just because somebody's struggle is a little more visible than yours. You've got one, trust me. I've met almost all of you. We've all got them. It's just that some might be a little more outward. God has intentionally put us together, no matter what our ability or lack thereof. He's good in that, and He's working for our good and His glory. And we're in this together, and we need to give honor, as this passage says, to every part of the body. Um, Let me give you some real specific applications here. Some of you might need to serve as a special needs buddy. We need that occasionally. Um, Right now, most of our kids don't need a one-on-one buddy, but you know what? There are times we need it, particularly vacation Bible school. That might be something God's laying on your heart, and you might have no clue how to do it. We have some awesome moms and dads who can teach you. We have some awesome teachers um, who do that for a living that can teach you how to do that. Um, that means when we build that next building, man, we got to have a family restroom. We are dumb to not put one in here. <laughs> that, was, that was one of those, you look back and you're like, oh, we need a family restroom. We need to rebuild the office someday so it's wheelchair accessible, and it's, it's more accessible to People, we need to be ADA-friendly, not just compliant. And you know what? That might cost us some money sometimes. But congregation, that's what we're going to do. We're committed to that as elders. We've already talked about that as elders. Next phase, we're going to fix that stuff. We're going to fix that stuff that we just didn't know. Um, That means there are some of us who need to change our language a little bit. Um, there was a day when the term "clinically retarded" used to be used, and that term was was co-opted into our culture, and it was used as a spear to stab. Um, if that's in your language, just just cut it out completely. It needs to be gone. It hurts your brothers and sisters in Christ. It cuts them to the quick. Stop, please. For the love of God. And I mean that quite literally. Stop completely. Um, That means some of us need to learn the lingo. We need to listen to parents. We need to listen to individuals about what really does help and what may not be a help at all. Actually may be really irritating. Just be willing to ask a question. Be willing to listen. Um, One of the things that I have here today in the back by those resource tables, by the way, you can grab anything off there anytime you want to, um, and we've got some more outside. But there is a printed out brochure from a sister church. It's where David Platt's pastor um, out of Washington area, and it's about greeting and welcoming and teaching people who have special needs. Um, Let me encourage you, if you are a greeter, pick that up on your way out. It'll take you 15 minutes to go through But for the rest of us that may not be greeters, you need to be a greeter. Two, um, some of y'all caught that, all right. Um, two, if you don't know what to say and you feel awkward and weird talking to somebody who might have special needs, grab that book. There's a page that says, don't say this, do say this. That's instructions I can follow, all right? (laughs) Just grab that. It'll take 15 minutes and it'll be really, really good for you. They're on the back on your way out there. Um, It means some of y'all may need to head with me to Central Asia this summer, because this is what we do. We share the hope of Jesus Christ with people who are completely hope with with the mephiboshes of our modern day. They're rejected in a society that used to be Russian um, that said, if you're not productive to society, if you're it was a communist society, if you're not productive, you can't add to the state. You're out. And so they were rejected. It's a version of Islam that says if you have a deformity, even a disability, if you can't walk, you're out because you're cursed by Allah. By the way, you and your entire family. And so we go and say, you're not cursed by the real God. The real God loves you and he sent his son to die for you. There's good news. That's what we do. Some of you may need to go. All right, number four. I need to go a little faster here. Number four, hospital, hospitality generously and generosity. I can't. Let me just start that one over there. All right. I was still on the old point. My brain was going there. Hospitality and generosity are marks of being a Christian. Hospitality and generosity are marks of being a Christian Sometimes we get this attitude that I'm a Christian, I'm good, I've trusted Christ, I don't need anything else. And and, and there is a sense in which that's true. We're saved by the blood of Christ alone. But if we've been saved... Christ changes our heart, and He calls for a transformation of our lives. It doesn't mean we work to be saved. It doesn't mean we work to stay saved. It means He is working in us. And sometimes we kind of pat ourselves on the hand or the back and say, Oh, goody me, I didn't lie today. Or, goody me, I didn't do that. No, there should be characteristics that mark you as a Christian. It should be characteristics that make you look like Jesus. For instance, Jesus said, they're going to know you're my followers because you love each other. I love you. I'm known for love. You love each other. Ah, they'll make the connection. There's other places where it says so strongly that if you don't love the brothers and sisters, you don't know God. It comes hard. These character qualities that our Christ-likeness mark us. That's, that's how people know we're Christians. And two of those that we often forget are hospitality and generosity. When David went to honor someone, what's he do? "I've got you all this stuff. I'm going to take care of you got all this. Now come to my table. Eat with me. Come to my table, not just once, over and over and over. Hospitality is is not an instant. It's a trait and it's achieved when when our good is is put on display. What Christ has created in us, not in and of ourselves, but what Christ has created in us, it it bleeds out, it oozes out. It's not a season of life, it's not a certain time, it's not a, a holiday. Hospitality is the character trait of that incarnation of the gospel we talked about before. It's incarnating the love of Jesus. We talk a lot about love, but hospitality and generosity is when we show that love. This is when that love is lived out. And it's not just about having people to your house, but that's a really big part of it. It's an attitude of welcoming people into your life. It happens at work when you include that guy or that lady in the office in lunch. It happens at school when you leave your normal spot, students, to reach out and intentionally meet the person that doesn't fit in. It happens at the grocery grocery store when you intentionally engage to give a hand to that mom who's just having the day. It happens at the gym when you start the relationships. College students, it happens when you take time to listen and really care with those who are fighting aloneness and are hurting. Let me ask you to be honest with yourself. Just a moment. A little bit of introspection. Who's been at your table this month? I I mean that very literally. Who has been at your table this month? Be practical in another way. How can you express hospitality if you're never home? What do you need to sacrifice on the altar to be more available to your family, to this church, to your neighbors? Relationships take time. It's not a one and done thing. Oh, we went out to lunch. We're good. We're best buddies now. No, it takes time. It takes time. David treated Mephibosheth like a son. This is the bar that David sets. So let me ask, who needs to come into your life like a son, like a daughter? Which one of our high school or college students do you need to seek out and say, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to text them and I'm going to love them. And when 10 out of 11 times they don't return their text, I'm just going to keep on praying and keep on telling them how much I love them. Who needs that? College students. College students. College students, are you investing this time of your life in others? Well, let me say something, college students, single folks. I want to tell you a quick story before I wrap this point up. When I did my PhD, one of the things I did was was go to church plants and I just studied and I mean studied hours and hours and hours, about twenty hours of just talking to people about their church plant um, down in Redeemer in Birmingham, awesome, awesome church. Joel is the name of the pastor there. He was the oldest person in the church. He was 30 um, when it started. They started about the same time. They celebrated their 10th anniversary this past summer uh, as well. When they started, not only was he the oldest, he had the oldest kids. As a matter of fact, he had the only kids in church. They were the kids' ministry, all four of them. And his daughter, the oldest of his kids, became a teenager. She graduated from what had then become a little fledgling children's ministry and she was the only teenager in the church. And eventually a second teenager came and they didn't know what they were going to do. He was really praying about what do we do? How can I pastor a church where my daughters alone? One of the key reasons that he stayed at that church which now running about 3000 was because a gal in college said, I can take those two out for coffee once a week. And she did. And his daughter, who felt alone and left out and was just really questioning spirituality, is a godly, godly young junior in high school now. Because of a college student who said, I can take them off to coffee. Not only did she change that girl's life, she changed the course of that church because if he'd left then, who knows if they'd even made it. Show hospitality. All right, last thing. Come to the king's table. These applications are really important, but I don't want you to get the message this is all about character and being good and, and working really hard because the true heart of this passage is David and Mephibosheth. The true heart of this passage is to point us to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not David the king. It's to see who we really are, to see that we are the enemies of the king. We're the rival competition. We're children of the evil anti-king in and of ourselves. We're not just folks who need our rough edges cleaned up. We're citizens of a rival kingdom to Christ. We're the folks from nowhere. We're the people who have nothing. And we're the nobodies in and of ourselves. Jesus said in the book of Revelation that you think you're rich, you think you're good. He said, you are wretched, poor, naked, and blind in and of yourself. Did you catch the, the, the graphicness of that? But the king, I don't mean David, I mean Jesus, the king of the coming kingdom has sought us out by name just as David called out for Mephibosheth, King Jesus has called out for you. He's snatching people out of the rival realm to build a people for himself to make his own kingdom, and he's calling folks just like me and just like you, and he calls us from no place to his place to eat at his table. Do you think it's an accident that one of the ways Christ's kingdom is described is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Christ is calling you to eat and dine at his table. That same passage in Revelation where He calls us wretched and blind. He also says, I'm standing at the door knocking. And He says, whoever will open the door, I will eat with him. He is calling to you. And He says, come to My table and when you won't, I'll even come to yours. So listen to the Father who sent His perfect Son to live a perfect life for you, filling all His righteous demands, die for your sins, raise up from the grave, and calls out to you to express your faith, to trust Him, to repent, which means turning from your sins to Him, turning from our ways to Christ's ways, to look to Him and be saved. And sit at the table and feast with the King. So today, whether you're still a rebel in another realm, And you need to come to Jesus for the first time or you just need to settle into the table and stop wiggling around and squirming out of the chair just like the little ones at Thanksgiving. Come from nowhere to the table of the King. Let's pray. God, thank you that despite our crazy stubbornness to rebel against you, You seek us out by your grace and your kindness, and you draw us, and you call us not just to get out of hell free, but you call us to your table to dine with the King. Lord, I pray that we would see, just as the author put it 70 years ago, that we've just been eating mud pies. down by the creek, when you're calling us to the glorious seaside retreat. Or may we give up on our sin and turn to you, Jesus, whether it's for the first time or for the 400th. Draw our hearts to you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.